Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. That is the move to being a product leader in your organization or the organization that you want to work with. Being a leader involves creating vision and providing meaning to those who you work with. And it's the topic of Fred Kaufman's new book, The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. Fred is an advisor leadership development at Google and former vice president of executive development and leadership philosopher at LinkedIn, certainly a tool that I suspect all of us use. He earned his PhD in advanced economic theory at UC Berkeley and then taught management accounting and control systems at MIT for six years before forming his own consulting company and teaching leadership workshops for major corporations and 15,000 executives. Sheryl Sandberg writes about him in her very important book, Lean In, claiming that Kaufman will transform the way you live and work. Certainly very high praise. We discuss why organizations lose, how organizations can win, Fred's three-part framework for creating a meaningful culture, and how product managers can deal with conflict. And if you're on the path to being a product master, you're going to appreciate Fred's genuine approach to becoming a leader. You'll find the summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 176. Check it out. Now, enjoy the interview. Fred, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Chad. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I am very glad that you wrote this book for us, The Meaning Revolution. I want to dive into that and, and talk about that. And the book is framed around kind of two key questions uh, as I look through it. One was, why do organizations lose? And another one was, how can organizations and the people within them win? Why don't we start with that first one? Can you tell us what it actually means, why organizations lose, what's going on with that? Yeah, they lose because uh, they're not set up to win. Uh, I know it sounds like an obvious thing, but most people don't really understand what their job is. And the organizations create an illusion that confuse people and distract them from doing the real job and put them to do something that looks like a job, but it goes against the opportunities that the organization has to win. Hmm. Uh, let, let me give you a, a quick example. Uh, let, let's just take a very, very simple organization like a soccer team, which is uh, an example I use in the book. And if you're a defensive player and I ask you, what's your job? What, what, what's your automatic answer? What, what would you say, Chad? I wish I knew soccer better to actually offer something reasonable here. <laughs> no, no, you're reasonable. I, I, Let, let's say if I'm defensive, I'm a goal, uh, the goalie. Yes. Okay, so what's your job? To make sure the ball does not get into the goal. Okay, very good. So that's what everybody would say. So you know enough soccer to answer, okay, the, question, <laughs> to answer the question wrongly. Oh, no. Because that's wrong. That's wrong, Yes. And I'll prove it to you in about less than 30 seconds. Okay. What's the goal of the team? To win. So what's the goal of every single player in the team? To get points scored more than the other team so they win. Exactly. To win. This, this is not a trick question. If the job of the team is to win, mm. the job of every single player is to help the team win. Okay. But that's not what you said 30 seconds ago. For the goalie, it's not. Yeah. What's the, what's the job of the goalie then? To do whatever is necessary, I guess, to help the team win. Exactly. Now, now that, that, is, that is why organizations lose. Because everybody is doing what they think is their job, but they're not helping the company win. 
So, for example, a salesperson uh, will say, my job is to sell. And the answer is no. The job is to help the company win. Because if you sell as a salesperson goods and services that are not really what the customers need, well, you're going to have a tremendous amount of churn. And then you have bad word of mouth in the marketplace. And there are terrible examples of people that think they're doing their job and they're pushing, I don't know, like timeshare, uh, selling timeshare. And then the whole industry collapses because everybody knows uh, half of them are fraud or they're pushing uh, weeks uh, or time uh, on, on you that you're never going to use because the property is not appropriate. So helping people understand that the goal of every job is to help the organization win is a tremendous cultural change. Uh, an example of a good organization was NASA in the early 60s. Mm, right. uh, they were trying to put a, you know, the Apollo program in place. Uh, President Kennedy once went to NASA and he was walking around and crossed paths with a custodian, a fellow who was mopping the floor. And he just stopped and said, hey, hello. He said, shook hands with him and said, so what's your job? And automatically, the custodian said, to put a man on the moon, Mr. President. Now, that is a good culture. That's an organization that wins. And NASA got to put a man in the moon before it kind of collapsed and the culture went sour. And then you had all these other disasters. But at that time, the culture was very clear. We're all committed to fulfill our mission. And that's why we win, not because every person does whatever their job appears to be. Yeah, and I love that NASA example because it illustrates everyone's focused on a single goal. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. The soccer question that you asked me, I, I think, helps to paint this picture. Our organizations are often treated as these functional silos, and someone in sales might optimize what they think needs to get done for their role and responsibilities, while someone in engineering might optimize something that actually is counterproductive to the sales effort. And this is really more of a systems approach that you framed yes. in that, yes. that example. That that, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because from a systems approach, in order to optimize the system, you have to sub-optimize the subsystems. Right. And when people try to optimize their subsystem, they are sub-optimizing the system. It seems like a tongue twister, but it is a profound truth of systems optimization. You want the whole to function, which means that the parts have to subordinate their performance to the performance of the whole. And most people don't get paid 
to optimize the performance of the whole, they get paid to optimize the performance of the part. So it's not surprise that the organization doesn't win. Imagine a soccer team that is paying every player to optimize their KPI. Like, you know, if you are playing uh, defense on the right-hand side, you get uh, points for no goals scored by an attack on the right-hand side. That's right. the only thing you care about. Uh, then, uh, you know, nobody collaborates with anybody else and you have these silos that you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the thing is, I mean, I thought about this. Oh, I have an answer. Why don't we have collective performance metrics? Either the team wins together or loses together. And I came up with a whole literature in agency theory. It's part of what I studied uh, during my economics uh, career, mm-hmm. and in, uh, which is uh, people may remember uh, A Beautiful Mind, you know, John Nash and the idea of uh, game theory and how people behave in strategic situations. But agency theory says the only way to incentivize a self-interested agent with private information is to compensate him or her based on the local performance. I mean, the, you don't need to understand the whole literature, but it's saying, you know, if you, if you tell everybody the team wins or loses together, you can be preyed upon by free riders, by people that hide in the confusion. They don't spend effort. They don't, they're not good. They're not talented. But you can't find out who those people are because in the middle of the big mess of everybody helping everybody else, it's hard to know who's doing a good job and who's not doing a good job. So you run into some very big problems when you try to foster cooperation by saying everybody optimize the system. Uh, if you have, I mean, if you have two people, that's not too difficult to observe. But if you have 200,000 people, mm-hmm. uh, well, you have no idea who's helping who and who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job. So it's a really wicked problem. It's not that people are dopes and they are paying people on their OKRs or key performance indicators because they are stupid. It's just really, really difficult to navigate the dilemma between local and global performance metrics. It is. And, and, you know, from that systems perspective, I always think of the, that model where we're looking around and trying to identify our our maximum in some area, our optimal performance. And we may be look our perspective might be looking at that where we see the peak performance, but we are, ourselves are not looking from a position that we can actually see the total system performance. And the analogy given for this picture in my mind, at least, is you know I, I live in the uh, along the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And from where I live, I can see what looks like a mountain from my perspective, right? But if I go mm-hmm. down the road five miles, then I can see what was behind it from that perspective, an actually much taller mountain. And without having exactly. that entire system perspective, you can't really know if you're optimal or not. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's the problem of an individual trying to push for better performance without understanding that they have to play for the team. A great movie is Moneyball. Uh, to oh, I, yeah, I love that movie, how it illustrates those. Exactly. The so this movie illustrates because the players that are expensive and they look like they're really good are not the ones that help the team win. And the players that really help the team win don't look so good, so they are cheap. Right. And it's it's an economist from Yale. The, the, the main character is not, I mean, it, there are two. One is the manager, uh, Mr. Bean, but then there's, I don't remember the name of the young fellow who who comes up with this, crazy scheme with the statistics say, oh, you know, we can sell high and buy low because we can sell these players that look good and they're uh, appreciated by the marketplace. And we can buy those other players that walk funny or hit the ball funny or do, you know, do, do 
single or doubles, but they, they rarely bat home runs. And yet they are extremely valuable to help the team win. And the A's won by a mile, but more importantly, they won with the lowest budget ever of a baseball team. The difference in percentage between their budget and the budget of the next team was phenomenal. And that's, uh, that's a testament to how do you optimize really a system. It's a great example. And I, I guess another sport one would be the Miracle on Ice, the 1980s U.S. Ho- uh, Olympics hockey team that took yeah. on the Russians and how they, that, that coach, uh, I had the pleasure of hearing the captain of the team speak once and how the coach selected players that could play well together, not play well individually. Exactly. And that, that playing well together is much more than a personal skill. There's a state of mind. Hmm. There's a, a sense of mutual respect, care, uh, a sense of community, a shared mission, a pride of sharing values that, um, that is tremendously important. That's why I wrote the book about, because hmm. performance is not independent of personal experience and motivation. Mm-hmm. So uh, when people say, oh, we're, we're hard-nosed here, I say, well, it's fine. If you're really hard-nosed, then uh, you should pay attention to meaning. You should pay attention to the way people experience the camaraderie of the group and so on. If you don't pay attention to that, don't tell me you're hard-nosed. Yeah, that's where performance comes from. And, and that goes to the title. I, I wanted to dive into that a little bit more, the title of your book, The Meaning Revolution. What do you mean by, by meaning revolution? Well, I, I, it's a tip of uh, my hat uh, and respect to Thomas Kuhn, uh, a, a historian of uh, science, a philosopher who wrote perhaps the, the book in the humanity, the most uh, read book in humanities, The History of Scientific Revolutions. And Kuhn says that um, science operates within a certain paradigm, and then there are anomalies. There are results that shouldn't happen. And reality wins. <laughs> when, when an anomaly comes up, you have to change the paradigm. You have to change the theory because you can't say reality is wrong. Like, um, you know, Einstein was doing calculations uh, and uh, the calculations didn't work. And he said, okay, we, we need a theory because uh, the way um, uh, um, we are thinking of gravity, Newton's equations don't apply when we get closer to the speed mm-hmm. of light or when we are looking at interstellar differences. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, we need a new paradigm. And he created uh, first uh, relativity and then the general theory of relativity. But then uh, the quantum physicist said, oh, well, Einstein, that looks really good. But if we take your equations and we try to understand how uh, quantum fields work, with, that is within uh, the atom and very small uh, uh, distances, uh, then your theory doesn't work either. And we need another theory. So the anomalies really propel the science forward. And the anomaly I found is this contradiction between local and global performance metrics, that um, agency theory is telling you something about how to run your organization from a micro perspective, and systems theory is telling you exactly the opposite thing on how to run your organization from a systems perspective. And most people are just stuck, confused, because uh, I use the analogy of a blanket that's too short. Micro is telling you, if you want accountability, you need to measure people, individuals. And macro or systems theory is telling you, if you want cooperation, you need to measure the system. You have to subordinate the individuals to the system. And you say, well, what do I do? Do I measure the individuals or do I measure the system? Right. And if you measure both, well, you have to make one more important than the other so it doesn't work. It's a blanket that's too short. 
If you pull it down, your chest freezes. If you pull it up, your feet freeze. Hmm. And, uh, you know, what do you do? And just, just to give away my answer is you have to electrify the blanket. You know, you can't, you can't make this blanket warm you up with more cloth. It's just, it's the, it has the surface that it has and you can't add any more cloth. But if you find an electric blanket and you plug it in, then it will warm you up. And I say the same thing. How do you solve this problem in an organization? Well, you have to electrify the organization. You have to infuse the organization with an energy that will uh, solve this problem in a different dimension. And that's, that, that's the, the new dimension is what I'm calling meaning. Uh, but it's a, it's a summary of uh, collaboration, a sense of mutual respect, care, pride, because we are doing it ethically, uh, the sense of uh, excitement because we're pursuing a mission that we consider noble and is something good for the world that makes us proud to, to be a part of it and so on. So I call that meaning. And I say it's a meaning revolution because meaning is the new, if you will, the complementary paradigm. It's not that when Einstein said um, Newton is not enough, he said Newton was wrong. He said Newton is applicable in a certain domain. And I'm saying the same thing. You know, traditional performance metrics are applicable up to a certain level. And if people are starving to death and you give them money, I mean, that, that is as important as can be. But, you know, when people are making, I don't know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, they're not starving anymore. Now, maybe they have aspirations, but if you want to go up to, if somebody's making half a million dollars a year, now there, there are not too many material things that they would be hungry for. They might want, I don't know, big homes or, I don't know, a boat or an airplane, but, but those, most people after they're making that, that kind of money, you know, if you say, I'll give you 10% more, yeah, it's nice, but it doesn't, doesn't motivate them. Right. So the question is, how do you get the best performance and solve this problem of the individual versus the team with material means? And the answer is you can't. But if you expand the range, just like Einstein expanded the range of his theory, said, okay, we can understand why Newton works in certain area, but then when it stops working, here's another theory that will complement it. And I'm saying material incentives will work up to a certain point, but then when material incentives stop working, here's an additional tool, which has to do with meaning, that I am offering to address this problem more effectively. So, again, back to the NASA example, that was a good example of how pride and excitement for a well-defined mission that everyone bought into were getting a man on the moon. That's the meaning. That's exactly my point. That this is a shared purpose, a sense that we're in it together, that we're doing something great that will be remembered. Uh, I mean, I quote in, in one of my last chapters this uh, speech by Henry V in the play of Shakespeare where he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Uh, for whoever sheds blood with me today will be my brother, be he nurse or vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And, and you know, you have, this seems like so grandiose, but this is, I mean, I, I, I once met with uh, General Stanley McChrystal, we were together in a conference, and he was the, uh, the person that put together the Joint Special Operations uh, Command in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote this wonderful book, Team of Teams, but we, we, we connected because we were really speaking about the same thing. He was coming at it from personal experience of doing, doing this to put together special forces operators from different, uh, different units that didn't want to work together because each one of them had their pride and they were extraordinary warriors. 
but uh, they were being beaten up by much less extraordinary uh, fighters from the other side. He was telling those stories, and then I gave him structure, and we got into this great conversation. And he said, you know, it, it was once we started working together and we felt this unity of purpose and with collaboration, uh, our results changed dramatically. So, uh, you know, from the beginning of time, uh, as, as uh, General McChrystal told me, warriors have been listening to these words of, of the Shakespeare play when they're about to go into battle. And now he said, you know, sometimes they actually watch the video because it's so, so profound in the sense of leadership, creating this shared space of meaning in which people find unity. And in sports, we don't have no, no, no trouble speaking about team spirit. I would say, yeah, yeah, that team, you know, really has a team spirit. But in business, like, whoa, no, 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 that's religious. <laughs> right. we can't. I, no, no, it's not religious. Team spirit is this energy, like the electrifying energy that people feel when they are uh, like the ice hockey team. Say, you know, this is not just about winning a game. There's a lot more riding on this. This is much more meaningful than just getting a higher score than the opponent. There's the whole, you know, the, the, the culture, the Americans, we're the underdogs. This, and it, is, it was an epic win that is remembered. And we, you, know, you and I are talking about this that happened, what, 30 years ago? Right. Yeah. It has meaning to us still. The, yes. You know, as you're talking through that, one thing I was thinking about was you know, Maslow's hierarchy that talks about our motivational levels. And, and he said, well, yes. you need to have your needs met at one level before you even care at the next ones. And you kind of address his first two, you know, talking about the physiological and safety that, you know, if we make enough money to provide food for ourselves, uh, provide shelter, that the next level we move up is called the social level. And a lot of people, as I, when I teach, uh, you know, my university teaching, when I address this, a lot of people misinterpret that to think that that means, well, you need to build some sense of social camaraderie among people, like having, you know, lunches and pizza parties and things, which is important. But the core meaning there was you have to communicate to people that they're part of something bigger than themselves, that they're yes. working together to do something important that extends beyond themselves. We're perfectly aligned because that's exactly what it takes. I, I call that um, camaraderie rather than friendship uh -huh. because, you know, when, like you get along with someone, you have similar tastes, you joke, you know, you go out and hang out or have a drink or watch a movie. I mean, that's great. And that's very socially rewarding, I'd say. But honestly, uh, when, when you are in a, in a performance field, you don't, you don't need friends. You just need people that will share this unity of purpose and the unity of values and that will hold you accountable. In fact, will do with you things that friends may not do, like challenge you and say, hey, you know, that's not okay. And with a friend, it's like, oh, whatever. You know, you don't want to go to the gym. Don't go to the gym. You don't want to do, you know, your homework. It's okay. But, but if you're in a, let's say, a university team with other fellow students and you have a unity of purpose and you want to create something great in a project and you're not pulling your weight, I mean, your, your comrades are going to come and say, hey, that's not okay. And right. I want people like that. And you, everybody wants people like that. I mean, everybody who's worth having in a team wants people like that around. Sure. Because that's what keeps us in shape. That, that creates a, a sense of community that's so much deeper than having a pizza together. Yeah, that, that's a characteristic of a high-performing team. And for anyone that's had the experience of being on one where you're, you are mutually holding each other accountable, that's just magical, right? High-performing teams get so much more done than your normal team. 
And it's because yes. they have that shared meaning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part of this meaning revolution. On a, a team sport, you know, uh, a sport team, we might call that the, the team spirit. In the organization, we would refer to it as culture. Most people think about the, the culture of the organization. To make this happen, where does that really start, right? Is it, I would think this is a leadership-driven top-down, or is it a yeah. more grassroots also? How, how does the culture really come about to impact that performance? Well, I don't know if it has to start with the leadership, but it has to cascade from the leadership. It may be that some part of the organization is uh, innovating and uh, let's say a department can adopt certain practices, but if they're going to go beyond this department, it's not going to be just by people copying. It will have to go to the leadership and the leadership has to follow. I call it, I wrote one of the chapters on the, on the three Ds. Uh, the three the Ds are, you have to define the standard. Hmm. So first the leaders would say, this is the way we're going to work together. And, you know, there's this book, like the no asshole rule. That, that would be uh, a good standard, like no assholes here. And mm-hmm. you know, the book, uh, the author defines what, what he calls an asshole and says, no, that is not okay. Like that's out of bounds. You do that, you're not a part of this organization. And here could be things like, you know, we treat each other with respect. Here's the mission. This is what we're here to accomplish. And let's be clear that we're here to put a man in the moon, uh, put a man on the moon. And if someone feels that they are trying to, you know, build a better rocket or feels like they want the best electronics, uh, this is not the way we're going to work here together and you're not going to last very long. So you have to define the standards. Then you have to demonstrate the standard. Because if you, if you say one thing and then you don't do it or you do the opposite, you create cynicism. You'll right. kill the culture of the organization. And so many leaders um, just talk because talk is cheap. Uh, but then when push comes to shove, especially when they have to make tough decisions, their actions will say the exact opposite than what their words said before. Mm-hmm. And that, that is very destructive. The leaders, when I, when I work with a leadership team, I say, don't tell people what you expect from them. When you go back, because we may be in an offsite or uh, discussing this privately, say, when you go back, tell people what they have a right to demand of you. So it's a very different thing when you go back and say, okay, we, this is our statement of values. And now we expect all of you to behave like that. No, no, no. You don't have any moral authority to say that. You have to start by saying, um, you have the absolute right to call us if you are not pleased with the way we are managing our conversations with you. And we are not aligned with the things that we declare. So if that's what you think, then please call us on, uh, on the carpet and uh, challenge us mm-hmm. now. And the third is you have to do that with the people. It's like if, if people agreed to abide by a certain set of standards and it was a, 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 an agreement, not, not an imposition, like I'm proposing certain standards and, you know, I'm saying like if you're the coach of the hockey team, say no prima donnas here, we're going to play together and the purpose is to win, not for anybody to shine. And if someone says, well, I don't want to do that, it's like, okay, you have the right not to want to do that, but I have the right not to have you in my team because I'm the coach and I need to choose players that will achieve the mission that we have set ourselves uh, to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if everybody agrees, then you have to hold people accountable. And that's what I mean by demand. So define the standards, demonstrate the standards, and then demand the standards and have consequences if people don't behave according to the standards. And that's how, you know, you said extraordinary teams hold each other accountable. 
Yeah, and that would be how culture would get built quickly by doing those three things. I, I like your 3D framework. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And once you have those standards in place and you follow them, model them, and expect them from others, then you would have the culture moving the direction that you wanted to. Another characteristic of a culture like that and of high-performing teams is this issue of conflict. And I know you address conflict in the book, too. And as product managers, you know, right, we're, we're the ones often we feel kind of squeezed at times because we work so cross-functionally, we see what's going on in sales and marketing and engineering development and manufacturing and you know the different functions of the organization, that there's no way but that's going to lead to conflict at times. What's your suggestions for dealing with that, right? For in this context of meaning and camaraderie, how do we deal with conflict better? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, there's, uh, I consider that essential for the life of the organization to to learn how to deal with these conflicts more effectively because they can destroy the culture or they can build it in a very powerful way. Um, so there's the first principle is that every conflict in the organization has to be a collaborative conflict. And what I mean by collaborative conflict is that we share a context of collaboration. Let's say, Chad, you and I have a disagreement, but we have to frame our disagreement in a larger context of agreement. Like you and I would like this podcast to be as good as possible. And, and we both agree, this is what winning means. We are, we're in a partnership. I want to make this podcast great. Mm-hmm. That's whatever standards we use, but we both want it to be great. Now you may say, <clears throat> Fred, uh, it would be better. I think uh, it would be better if you just give me short answers and you just, uh, you know, quick people would like to get sound bites and, and have, um, just a snappy and quick conversation with some ideas they can take. And I said, Chad, I, I think it would be greater if I can explain some of the things a little more so it's not so uh, perhaps so crisp or so pithy, but it goes a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and we might genuinely disagree. You know, this is not a personal confrontation. And then we can go back and forth and understand. But we both agree that we want the, the podcast to be great. Right. And th- there's that, that's the context of collaboration. We have a disagreement about the best strategy to accomplish our mission because we have different worldviews, different assumptions, different information perhaps about uh, like, I know the content, but you know the audience. And I said, look, from a content perspective to really explain it, I need more time. Say yes, but the audience is not going to stay with you because uh, you may have a great explanation, but they don't have the patience to really listen. If they want to read the book, but when they're listening to a podcast, they want something quick that they can take away and decide whether they want to read the book. And you know, that's that's how we address the, the conflict and then at, let's just say if we we can't agree because this is an incommensurable uh, problem, like, you know, who, who knows what's the best? You might say, well, you know, Fred, I'm, I'm doing this podcast. I'd like to ask you, can, can you give me at least permission to guide you in this area, given that I have the experience with my audience? And I would say, yeah, you, you, <laughs> you got it. So uh, it, it really is your podcast. And uh, I am here to uh, make it great under your guidance. And then we solve the problem or not. If I, if it's my podcast and, you know, I'm inviting you, then I'd say, look, uh, I've been given the responsibility or, uh, you know, I am the managerial uh, authority here. I've been given the responsibility to make a judgment call. I don't know if this is the right judgment call, but I'd like to try it first, given that it's my head on the chopping block. Can you support me? And we'll see what happens. And then we'll reconvene and see what we learn. Right. And most people say, of course, yes. Right. Yeah. Treat it as an experiment, get more information and go from there. Exactly. And the heart of all that is a clear focus on 
what the mission is, and then collaborating over what we think is the best way of resolving this to make the mission effective. Exactly. Exactly. That's why. That's why the, the this this problem. When you say why why the organizations lose, you can see how if you are not clear about the mission, uh, all bets are off. Right. I mean, then, then the conflict becomes intractable because what are we trying to do? Well, I'm trying to maximize sales, and it's, well, I'm trying to minimize costs. And you say, well, you know, to win, uh, you have to make money by maximizing sales and minimizing costs. But you're treating that as a linear system when it really is non-linear because what you sell is going to affect also the cost of production and how you sell and the way you operate your manufacturing facility will affect your margins. So whether you make money or not is not two independent uh, factors that are additive. And then you can optimize each one of them and get the optimum of the two. It's not A plus B. It's a function of A and B, which is nonlinear and will require optimizing the system as a whole. Absolutely. As a quick story, I was a participant participant in an executive team for a startup and had a meeting, you know, executive team meeting, the CEO made an objective, which was we had to raise revenue in the next quarter, right? So startup Mm -hmm. issue of needing more runway. And in my role, I interface with all the functions time Mm -hmm. and sales responded to this and told me what the VP told me what they were doing. And engineering responded to, to this and the VP told me what they were doing. And I got to see both. And recognize that the actions were counterproductive to each other, that if we actually did those things, we would not have succeeded in raising revenue effectively over the next quarter because it wasn't treated as a integrated system. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's the problem in almost every organization. Well, luckily, you were there and you were interfacing with the different parts of the system and being able to bring some coherence and some sanity. But... Uh, when the organization becomes really big and uh, you have these uh, infractals, meaning, you know, it happens, it's not just the members of the executive team, but within even the functions, people have to interact with one another and across functions. And then you have somebody, I don't know, in credit that is mm-hmm. uh, three or four levels below the executive team. And this person has a task of minimizing bad debt. And then nothing is good enough. So then the, the salespeople are sending these prospects, say, okay, this customer wants to buy. And the credit department is saying, nope, you know, we can't extend credit. You know, they have to pay cash. It's like, oh, it's a big, big sale. And, right. you know, we, we can find this huge contract long term. So no, their credit is not good enough. And then you have these fights uh, in the bowels of the organization that it, they're hard to, um, to resolve because people are optimizing. And they're both right because they're pursuing different missions. They're not aligned. And creating this alignment is such a phenomenally difficult problem that, you know, when, when people get depressed, sometimes when I, I present the material of the book, <clears throat> I tell them the good news is you only have to suck a little bit less than everyone else and you win. <laughs> That's right. It's it, it <laughs> so bad, so bad. It's like, you know, you're, you're running a race and everybody else is crawling. So even if you hop on one leg, you're going to beat them because they're crawling on all fours. And you just... You know, you, you, you don't need to be in a world-class runner. If you just, just walk forward mm-hmm. slowly, you're going to be the best because people are horrible. Organizations are so, so, so bad at this that bringing a little awareness and a little commitment, at, at least for now, will start, uh, will differentiate an organization and will create a culture that will also attract the best people. Right. And that's what we want. And that goes back to the example you shared before, the Moneyball movie mm-hmm. was the, the stats and the difference between the performers that they were going after that made their team so good 
we're minimally better, right? They, you just have to be a yeah. little bit better in the right areas to exactly. win. So, but but, but you know, uh, just as a word of caution from the movie, you remember what happened when I think it's Jerry Bean was the name of the manager when he started selling the expensive players and buying the inexpensive ones. You know, you have the memory of what happened. No, tell us. They tried to fire him. Uh, I mean, the the owners of, of the right. club. They wanted to fire him because this, uh, this guy went crazy. He's he's selling our best assets and and buying you know valueless assets instead. This guy's crazy, right. and, and 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 they couldn't see because people were seeing with the eyes of the regular statistics, and they're saying this is a terrible deal. You know, we're selling this this uh, amazing player and we're buying a bad one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what 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 kind of business is this guy doing? And they they literally tried to fire him. So uh, the, the, the word of caution for organizations is look, if you're going to do this cultural change, you have to be very clear about why and how we will proceed and explain this to your board, to your colleagues in the executive team, to the people working in the company. And you need a lot of skill in communicating it so that people understand the logic. And it doesn't seem like an arbitrary, oh, these guys just went crazy, or now they became, you know, they got religion and they're they're all Buddhist and they want us to go crazy with spirituality. But, you know, team spirit is true in sports Mm -hmm. and it's also true in business. Absolutely. It's a good theme to end on for sure. And as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote. Do you have a a quote for us that you wanted to share? I'll tell you one thing that inspires me uh, that, I mean, I came up with, but it's, you don't have to drop out to have a meaningful life and you don't have to sell out to be successful in business. Fred, tell us what you mean by sell out. Well, sell out is uh, literally do things that go against your values. Right. Live miserably because you're not proud of the mission you pursue. Let's just say you are adamantly uh, against uh, smoking and then you work for a tobacco company. Right. Or you have, uh, I mean, that doesn't, I'm not, I'm not arguing that smoking is bad. I, I, I don't want to have content or you, you think, um, you know, you're passionate about firearms, but you are working for a group that uh, is trying to oppose uh, the second amendment, you right. know, whatever, whatever way your philosophy goes, yeah. sell out is to surrender your values and your principles in order to make money. Yeah. Or just sell out on the little things, knowing that, we are not doing as good as we could together, right? We, yes. we, if we were all going the same direction together, yeah. we would enjoy it more and we would be more effective. Uh, yeah, or somebody yells at you and you shut up and you take it because, oh, I need this job. That, that's selling out. Because you're selling out your dignity. Right. So you're not treated with respect. And some people say, well, you know, if you want to be successful in business, you can't have too many scruples or expect too much from people. And I disagree vehemently. Yep. I think you should have scruples. You should expect a lot and plant yourself in an environment that will lead you to grow. Excellent, Fred. I appreciate all the information. Can you tell listeners how they can find out about your book and uh, the work that you're doing? Uh, the best thing is to uh, do a search Fred Kaufman in LinkedIn. And then I've, I've created about uh, 103 to five minute videos with all the material of the book and my previous book called Conscious Business. Um, and uh, they'll, it's, all, it's all posted online free. I sent you a link to a presentation I put there in SlideShare, which is a, a summary teaser for the book, and that would be a very good way to start. 
Excellent. I will put those links in the show notes to make it easy for people to get access to. And Fred, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this with us. Thank you, Chad. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Fred at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 176. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.